Chapter 22 of The City of Fire by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22. Three days later, a pall hung over Sabbath Valley. The coroner's inquest had brought in a verdict of murder, and the day of the hearing had been set. Mark Carter was to be tried for murder, was wanted for murder, as Elder Harricot put it. It was out now, and everybody knew it but Mrs. Carter, who went serenely on her way, getting her regular letters from Mark, postmarked, New York, and telling of little happenings that were vague but pleasant and sounded so like Mark, so comforting and sunlike. So strangely tender and comforting and more in detail than Mark's letters had been wont to be. She thought to herself that he was growing up at last. He spoke of a time when he and she would have a nice home together somewhere, some new place where he would get into business and make a lot of money. Would she like that? And once he told her he was afraid he hadn't been a very good son to her, but sometime he would try to make it up to her, and she cried over that letter for sheer joy. But all the rest of the town knew that Mark was suspected of murder, and most of them thought he had run away and nobody could find him. The county papers hinted that there were to be strange revelations when the time of the trial came, but nothing definite seemed to come out from day to day more than had been said at first, and there was a strange lack of any mention of Mark in connection with it after the first day. Lynn Severn went about the house, quiet and white, her face looking like an angel's prayer, one continual petition, but she was sweet and patient and ready to do anything for anybody. Work seemed to be her only respite from the gnawing horror of her thoughts. To know that the whole village believed that Mark, her lifelong playmate, had been guilty of a crime so heinous was so appalling that sometimes she just stood at the window and laughed out into the sunshine at the crazy idea of it. It simply could not be. Mark, who had always been so gentle and tender for every living thing, so chivalrous, so ready to help. To think of Mark killing anyone. And yet, they might have needed killing. At least, of course, she didn't mean that, but there were circumstances under which she could imagine almost anyone doing a deed. Well, what was the use? There was no way to excuse or explain the thing she didn't understand, and she could just do nothing but not believe any of it until she knew. She would trust in God, and yes, she would trust in Mark as she always had done, at least until she had his own word that he was not trustable. That haughty withdrawing of himself on Sunday night and his, I am not worthy, meant nothing to her now when it came trailing across her consciousness. It only seemed one more proof of his tender conscience, his care for her reputation. He had known then what they were saying about him. He must have known the day before that there was something that put him in a position so that he felt it was not good for her reputation to be his friend. He had withdrawn to protect her. That was the way she explained it to her heart, yet while beneath it all was the deep-down hurt that he had not trusted her and let her be his friend in trouble as well as when all was well. She had written him a little note, not too intimate, just as a sister might have written, expressing her deep trust and her sincere desire to stand by and help in any time of need. In it she begged him to think her worthy of sharing his trouble as he used to share his happiness, and to know always that she was his friend, whatever came. She had read it over and over to be sure she was not overstepping her womanly right to say these things, and had prayed about it a great deal. But when it came to sending it, she did not know his New York address. He had been strangely silent during the last few months and had not written her. She did not want to ask his mother, so she planned to find it out through Billy. But Billy did not come. It had been two days since Billy had been around, or was it three? 
She was standing at the window, looking down the road toward the Saxon cottage and wondering if she wanted to go down and hunt for Billy, when she saw Miss Saxon coming up the street and turning in at the gate, and her face looked wan and crumpled like an old rose that had been crushed and left on the parlor floor all night. She turned from the window and hurried down. "'Miss Marilyn,' Aunt Saxon greeted her with a gush of tears, "'I don't know what to do. Billy's away. He hasn't been home for three days and three nights.' His bed ain't been touched. He never did that before except that last time when he stayed out to help Mark Carter that time on the mountain with that sick man, and I can't think what's the matter. I went to Miss Carter's, but she ain't seen him, and she says Mark's up to his business in New York, so Billy can't be with him, and I just know he's killed, Miss Marilyn. I just know he's killed. I dreamt of a shroud not before last, and I can't help thinking he's killed. And the tears poured down the tired little face pitifully. Marilyn drew her tenderly into the house and made her sit down by the cool window, brought a palm-leaf fan and a footstool, and told Naomi to make some iced orangeade. Then she called her mother and went and sat down by the poor little creature, who, now that somebody else was going to do something about it, had subsided into her chair with relief born of exhaustion. She had not slept for three nights, and two of those days she had washed all day. "'Now, Miss Saxon, dear, you're not to worry.' said the girl, taking the fan and waving it gently back and forth, touching the work-worn hand tenderly with her other hand. Billy is not dead, I'm sure. Oh, I'm quite sure. I think somehow it would be hard to kill Billy. He has ways of keeping alive that most of us don't enjoy. He is strong and young and sharp as a needle. No one can put anything over Billy, and I have somehow a feeling, Miss Saxon, that Billy is off somewhere doing something very important for somebody. He is that way, you know. He does nice, unusual things that nobody else would think of doing, and I just expect you'll find out some day that Billy has been doing one of those. There's that man on the mountain, for instance. He might be still very sick, and it would be just like Billy to stay and see to him. Maybe there isn't anybody else around to do it, and now that Mark has gone, he would feel responsible about it. Of course, he ought to have told you before he went, but he wouldn't likely have expected to stay long, and then boys don't think. They don't realize how hard it is not to understand. That's so, Miss Marilyn, sniffed Miss Saxon. He don't hardly ever think, but he might have phoned. Well, it isn't likely they have phones on the mountain, and you haven't any, have you? How could he? He might have phoned you. Yes, he might, but you know how boys are. He wouldn't want to bother anybody. And if the man was in a lonely cabin somewhere, he couldn't get to a phone. That's so, too. "'Oh, Miss Marilyn, you always do think up comfort. "'You're just like your ma and pa. "'But Billy, he's been so kind of peaked lately, "'so sort of gentle, and then again sort of crazy-like, "'just like his mother used to be before her husband left her. "'I couldn't help worrying.' "'Well, now, Miss Saxon, I'll inquire around all I can "'without rousing any suspicion. "'You know Billy would hate that.' "'Oh, I know he would,' flushed the little woman nervously. So I'll just ask the boys if they know where he is and where they saw him last, and don't you worry. I'll tell them I have a message for him, you know, and you just stop crying and rest easy and don't tell a soul yet till I look around. Here comes Mother. She'll help you better than I can. Mrs. Severn, in a cool white dimity, came quietly into the room, bringing a restful calm with her, and while Lynn was out on her errand of mercy, she slipped a strong arm around the other woman's waist and had her down on her knees in the alcove behind the curtains, and had committed the whole matter to a loving heavenly father, Billy and the tired little aunt, and all the little details of life that harrow so on a burdened soul, 
and somehow when they rose the day was cooler and life looked more possible to poor Aunt Saxon. Presently came Lynn, brightly. She had seen the boys. They had met Billy in economy day before yesterday. He had said he had a job, he didn't know how long it would last, and he might not be able to come to baseball practice. He told them who to put in his place till he got back. "'There now, Miss Saxon, you go home and lie down and take a good sleep. You've put this whole thing in the hands of the Lord, now don't take it out again. Just trust him. Billy'll come back safe and sound, and there'll be some good reason for it,' said Mrs. Severn. And Aunt Saxon, smiling, wistfully, shyly, apologetic for her foolishness, greatly cheered and comforted, went. But Lynn went up to her little white room and prayed earnestly, adding Billy to her prayer for Mark. Where was Billy Gaston? When Miss Saxon went home, she found a letter in the letter-box out by the gate addressed to Billy. This set her heart to palpitating again, and she almost lost her faith in prayer and took to her own worries once more. But she carried the letter in and held it up to the window, trying her best to make out anything written therein. She justified this to her conscience by saying that it might give a clue to Billy's whereabouts. Billy never got letters. Maybe it might be from his long-lost father, though they had all reason to believe him dead. Or maybe, oh, what if Albert Gaston had come back and kidnapped Billy? The thought was too awful. She dropped right down in the kitchen where she stood by the old patchwork rocking chair that always stood handy in the window when she wanted to peel potatoes and prayed, Oh, God, don't let it be. Don't bring that bad man back to this world again. Take care of my Billy and bring him back to me. Amen. Over and over again she prayed, and it seemed to comfort her. Then she rose and put the tea kettle on and carefully steamed open the letter. She had not lost all hope when she took time to steam it open in place of tearing it, for she was still worse afraid that Billy might return and scold her for meddling with his precious letter than she was afraid he would not return. While the steam was gathering, she tried to justify herself in Billy's eyes for opening it at all. After her prayer, it seemed a sort of desecration. So the kettle had almost boiled away before she mustered courage to hold the envelope over the steam, and while she did this she noticed for the first time significantly that the postmark was New York. Perhaps it was from Mark. Then Billy was not with Mark. But perhaps the letter would tell. So she opened the flap very carefully and pulled out the single sheet of paper, stepping nearer the window to read it in the late afternoon light. It read, Dear Kid, Shut Your Mouth and Saw Wood. Buddy. That was all. Aunt Saxon lifted frightened eyes and stared at the lilac bush outside the window, the water spout where Billy often shinned up and down, the old apple tree that he would climb before he was large enough to be trusted, and then she read the letter again. But it meant nothing to her. It seemed a horrible riddle. She took a pencil and a scrap of paper and quickly transcribed the mysterious words, omitting not even the punctuation, and then hurriedly returned the letter to its envelope, clapped the flap down, and held it tight. When it was dry, she put the letter up in plain sight on the top of the old secretary, where Billy could find it at once when he came in. She was taking no chances on Billy finding her opening his mail. It never had happened before, because Billy never had had a letter before, except notices about baseball and athletic association, but she meant it should never happen. She knew instinctively that if it ever did, she would lose Billy, if not immediately, then surely eventually, for Billy resented, above all things, interference. Then Aunt Saxon sat down to study the transcription, but after a long and thorough perusal, she folded it carefully and pinned it in her bosom. But she went more cheerily down to the market to get something for supper. Billy might come home any time now. His letter was here, and he would surely come home to get his letter. 
Down at the store she met Marilyn, who told her she looked better already, and the poor soul, never able to hold her tongue, had to tell the girl about the letter. "'He's had a letter,' she said, brightening. "'About a job, I guess. It was there when I got back. It's sawing wood. The letter doesn't have any head. It just says about sawing wood. I suppose that's where he is, but he ought to have let me know. He was afraid I'd make a fuss about it. I always do. I'm afraid of those big saws they use. He's so careless. But he was set on a grown-up job.' I couldn't get him to paste labels on cans at the factory. He said it was too much of a kid game. Oh, said Marilyn, wondering, sawing wood. Well, that's where he is, of course, and it's good healthy work. I wouldn't worry. Billy is pretty careful, I think. He'll take care of himself. But to herself on the way home, she said, How queer for Billy to go off sawing wood just now. It doesn't seem like him. They can't be so hard up. There must be something behind it all. I hope I didn't start anything asking him to stick by Mark. Oh, where is Mark? That afternoon, Marilyn took a horseback ride and touched all the points she knew where there might be likely to be wood sawing going on, but no Billy was on the job anywhere. As she rode home through economy, she saw Mrs. Fenner scuttling down a side street from the jail and hurrying into her own side gate like a little frightened lizard. Marilyn came back home heartsick and sad and took refuge in the church and her bells. At least she could call to Billy across the hills somewhere by playing the songs he loved the best. And perhaps their echoes would somehow cross the miles to Mark, too, by that strange, mysterious power that spirit can reach to spirit across space or years or even estrangement and draw the thoughts irresistibly. So she sat at the organ and played her heart out, ringing all the old sweet songs that Mark used to love when the bells first were new when she was learning to play them. Highland Laddie, Bonnie Bonnie Wild. Mavarine, Kentucky Home, songs that she had kept fresh in her heart and sometimes played for Billy now and then, and then the old hymns, did they echo far enough to reach him where he had gone, Mark sitting alone in his inferno, Billy holding his breath and trying to find a way out of his, did they hear those bells calling? O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our refuge from the stormy blast and our eternal home. The soul of the girl in the little dusky church went up in a prayer with the bells. Before the hills an order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, a thousand years the same. Every mortal in the village knew the words, and in kitchens now, preparing savory suppers, or down in the mills and factories, or out on the street coming home, they were humming them, or repeating them over in their hearts. The bells did not ring the melody alone. The message was well known and came to every heart. Mark and Billy knew them too. Perhaps by telepathy the tune would travel to their minds and bring their words along. Under the shadow of thy wings thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and thy defense is sure. The bells ceased ringing and the vibration slowly died away, hill answering to hill, in waves of softly fading sound while the people went to their suppers with a light of blessing and uplift on their faces. But in the darkened church, Marilyn, with her fingers on the keys and her face down upon her hands, was praying, praying that God would shelter Mark and Billy. End of chapter 22